welcome everybody to this latest edition of the Visions and Tones podcast. Today's episode is interesting. I'm talking to a close friend, but she actually was my brilliant lecturer when I was still in South Africa at the University of Johannesburg. So here's just a bit of a short bio. She completed her master's degree in sociology uh, with a cum laude at the University of Johannesburg. And she's a recipient of the Freya University, NRF, Desmond Tutu doctoral scholarship. She completed her PhD at Freya University in Amsterdam with a thesis titled Getting It Straight, Hetero Heterosexual Identities, Heteronormativity and Gender in Johannesburg, South Africa. She is also the grant holder of NIHSS funded research project on heteronormative and gender normative views in higher education institution, institutions called frustrating the norm, which we're going to talk a little bit about that. But there's something which is not on the bio that I just want to share. She's a senior lecturer and actually she lectures gender and sexuality, if I'm not mistaken. And also she lectured methodology of humanity. So she'll correct me in all lot of things that I said, if I said anything wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Dr. Letitia Smuts. Tish, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I've been stumbling all over your bio. It's been a while <laughs> I've okay. seen you. I guess I'm missing you guys. <laughs> we missed you too. And congratulations on your PhD. Uh, thank you so much. We are That's proud. Mm. I, I am really grateful. You know, coming from you guys, warm hands. And now you are the best sociology department in South Africa. Number one. That's amazing. On the African continent. Wow. On the African <laughs> continent. Actually, I think I remember mm. we said that best sociology department on the African continent. And here I am on the other side of the world talking back to you, my mentors and, you know, brilliant lecturers and now good friends and colleagues. It's good talking to you. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm so happy to, to be talking to you too. Right. Maybe before we sort of, I don't know if, 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 you are flexible to just go anywhere. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in frustrating the norm, mm. uh, your project. Maybe let's kickstart there before we get much more deeper. Why frustrating the norm and how does it link towards your overall work um, as a senior researcher, as a senior um, lecturer also? Mm-hmm. All right. So frustrating the norm, the name alone is kind of playing with the idea of straight which is tied to heterosexuality. But we want to frustrate it. We want to deconstruct what it means and, and mostly what it means to society. And this is linked to my overall research interest, which is heteronormativity, but also gender normativity, which kind of is, um, uh, how can I say, it, it, it comes from heteronormativity, and we can discuss that a little bit later. Yeah. But frustrating the norm specifically, this project is interested in how universities, higher educational institutions, deal with heterosexual and, and non-heterosexual issues, both in the curriculum, but also amongst the students themselves, what their views are about gender, about sexuality, because, uh, and this was born out of my own students, um, having taught research on postgraduate and undergraduate level, I noticed that students often confuse sex, gender, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. They kind of conflate the three concepts. And at the same time, they're holding on to extremely traditional heteronormative views. And, and that is something that I addressed in my PhD as well. And I wanted to explore further what can we do in a university setting to challenge these norms and also to bring awareness to students um, in order to make it a more inclusive space in the university setting. Mm -hmm. um, and I work with a team of, of, of five excellent people who um, – uh, I think all of us, if you speak to any one of us, our, our, our saying or our phrase is let's deconstruct the norm, let's smash gender binaries. And because I'm a senior lecturer um, and I have been for, I think, going on 16 years now, I wanted to start where my home is, and that is 
uh, higher educational institutions. Of course, this project, we would like to expand it um, to other spaces, but currently it's just at my home at, at, at the University of Johannesburg. And we work with um, the transformation units, especially um, to try and just address certain issues that came up in our own quantitative and qualitative research. Beautiful. I mean, uh, so feel free each and every time as we go through our conversation to sort of reflect back and talk about the plans within frustrating the norm as to where does whatever we're talking about fit in where possible. If we can now go back to the beginning, you said some of your students would sort of confuse the difference between gender and sexuality. And you mentioned a third um, variable there that I, I kind of like lost it a little bit. Can you just explain to us what's the distinction between those? All right, so I would like to start off by saying, I preface this by saying it's actually very complicated. People think it's so easy, <coughs> excuse me, but at the end of the day, it is complicated. But let, let me start with simplifying what sex is. You know, sex at the end of the day refers to biology. It refers to um, the sex that you are assigned to at birth right? And usually people think this has to do with what is between your legs. So if you have a penis, you're a male. If you have a vagina, you're a female. That is the most simplified definition of sex. But what has been silent for many, many years in society and in the medical industry is that there are also internal genitalia, for instance. We speak about chromosomes. We can speak about, um, you know, sex organs and, and hormones, which means that there's also something called a phenomenon called intersex. And these individuals almost, according to societal norms, do not fit into the male-female boxes. So the complicated answer then is that they are not really two sexes. Okay. They are more than two sexes. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that people have the assumption that based on your sex assigned at birth, that will also mean that your gender identity will be exactly the same. So when we speak about gender, of course, we're speaking about a social construct something and, and also a cultural construct. So for instance, if you are, um, you know, a, a male at birth, then it means you have to act in a masculine way. If you're female, you have to act in a female way or, or feminine way. Yeah. So anybody who crosses those lines are then seen as being deviant to their gender norms. But at the end of the day, and we know this, of course, there are many different types of gender associations. It has always been there. It's just that it's been silenced by society. So we can speak about, um, you know, people who, are, who, who do not, uh, how can I say, they're gender non-normative or they could be gender fluid. Or we can also speak about transgender individuals who feel like their assigned sex and gender do not meet up, right? And we can speak about gender dysphoria later. So that is the sex and gender. But then sexuality, this, this becomes very interesting. Sexuality is who you are attracted to sexually, right? Yeah. And, and many people think because of heteronormative rules that if you are a man, you have to automatically be attracted sexually to women and the other way around. So um, we, of course, know that there are many sexual identities, homosexuality, bisexuality, asexuality, pansexuality. We can go on and on about the different um, labels. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that just because you are a male at birth that you automatically are heterosexual. Now, that is where heteronormativity comes in. And that is why there's such a confusion between those three concepts. Wow. Yeah. That's I can I can see what you I can see what you mean. <laughs> I'm trying to now divide my brain to say, okay, where do I go now? Um uh but that's interesting. Let's let's speak about gender as a social construct or whatever. What what does it mean to say gender is a social construct? And I wish 
um, for you, Doc, to expand it for me to mm. the extent where if it's a, it's a social construct, the social aspect of it, does it lean towards any scientific evidence or we don't have to link it towards any scientific evidence? And I'm asking this question because to say gender is a social concept, it has raised a whole lot of debates. There's a new scholarship now that actually rises up to even speak about how this uh, conversation of gender is actually been used, it's been weaponized, and it's a problem of the progressive. How would your response be? Well, Tony, I think there is no empirical evidence, really, to say that there is definitely a set kind of gendered way of being. It really is a construct in the sense that it's invented. It was invented by a group of individuals. I always joke and say there were probably a bunch of powerful white men sitting around and saying, Oh, that that guy, he doesn't fit our box. Mm -hmm. He's dressing in a different way. He's looking and acting a bit more feminine. So he must be deviant. There must be something wrong with him. So that is kind of like how when my mind has always go, gone just to, to simplify it, right? Because at the end of the day, I do believe that a powerful individuals decided this is how a male should act. This is how they should behave. This is how they should dress. That is outwardly and the same with women. But with that came certain norms and roles. For instance, women are supposed to act in a feminine way, sit mm -hmm. pretty. Men are seen as the breadwinners. They should be more aggressive. And that creates what we call a gender binary, which can be very problematic if anybody does not fit into that box, as I was speaking about earlier. So in many ways, um, we, we are speaking about expectations that are created and have been for many, many centuries. So the moment we are born, we speak about socialization. We speak about, oh, the boy, it's a boy. Oh, blue. <laughs> it's a girl. Oh, pink. You know, and immediately um, from, from birth, you are placed in a box. And as you grow up, what happens is you are told this story over and over again, which is generational, that this is how a woman should act and this is how a male should act. Um, so just to use a very simplistic example, like if you're wearing makeup, you know, we see more men wearing makeup these days mm -hmm. and, and we are seeing more progressive movements. However, makeup was usually associated with femininity. Yeah. It is an identity marker of being feminine. Now, to take that example even further, um, I haven't experienced this in South Africa much, but when I studied abroad, and I'm not the type to wear makeup often, I don't like it on my face, it's not a marker of my identity, mm -hmm. um, not my personal or gendered identity. However, when I was studying abroad, a lot of people assumed and this is where that confusion between gender and sexuality comes in, they assumed I was lesbian. A lesbian woman just immediately because I wasn't wearing makeup and I would always say don't you think lesbian women wear makeup there are many lesbian right. women yeah. who wears yeah. makeup so it becomes this construct of what is associated with um usually cisgendered heterosexual women and men mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is and, and that those expectations mm -hmm. cre can create um othering because anybody who deviates like in my case I'm, I'm probably deviating then from my own femininity and my own heterosexual identity um they are questioned by society because it is seen as abnormal mm -hmm. and and i have a huge problem with the word normal in general right right so so part of things that i like to do every time when i look at the work that we do i also tend to sort of get a little bit naughty and go to look at the works of those who criticize the work oh. um, so that I can also be sort of up to date in terms of my thinking and in terms of my reasoning. Um, and also just, you know, to see to what extent and from what point of view are people critiquing, you know, criticizing the work that we do. And, and part of the scholarship that criticizes, you know, the studies on gender, sexuality and sex, whatever, there's a question being posed is really gender only a social construct and the question of whether is gender only a social construct it has been asked with 
you know, the reasoning that if it is only a social construct, therefore, where do we fit in the narrative of people having to, you know, take on hormones, people having to do sort of gender changes, you know, sexual organ changes and whatnot, trans basically. And I think also the reason for that is because perhaps even the term sex, the term gender, there's still certain context that the term gender, they're not using gender in a context that we're using it. They're sort of still using it in the olden ways where you'd recall in the past your, 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 any form that you completed will never ask you what is your sex, but it will ask you what is your gender. So it's basically not moving on with the, with, you know, with the terminology, but sticking towards what was happening in the past to say, yes, all these are social constructs, but also, to what extent are we going to keep on moving, keep on changing language? Because first thing, it's this. Second thing, it's this. Uh, these things keep on evolving, but the more we try to catch up, the more also other things open up. So I guess it's probably maybe a little mouthful that I've said so far. Perhaps you can start from, you know, responding as to whether is it only a gender? Is it only a social construct? If and 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 aren't we also tampering with biology when people begin to sort of take hormones and stuff like that? And does that still fall within the misunderstanding of what is happening between gender, sex, and sexuality? Mm. Okay, that is <coughs> excuse me, a mouthful. Okay. So I think first off, I would like to say that. You, you mentioned something which is very important, like it's always been, which we call in sociology the status quo, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and people like myself, advocates like myself, we want to challenge that status quo because um, personally, I do believe that, and in my own research, that gender is a social construct. Um, and what many of these other critics are falling into is the danger of essentialism. So, you know, basically just saying that this is how it's always been and there's only one way of being. So saying that, you know. They don't women, like postmodern thinkers basically even. They, they basically, like no, no, not at all. They, they reject postmodernism. Yeah. They uh, reject social constructionism theories. And, I mean, it's difficult for me, having done all the research that I've done, not to see it as a social construct. Everything I've seen and, and you know, I base all of my findings on, all of my arguments on empirical findings, of course. So to me, it is almost impossible to fall into that trap. And I think we've progressed so much as queer theorists, as well as feminist theorists, that we can move beyond that. So a lot of all of these criticisms are still based on ignorant, ignorant, ignorant thoughts, basically. And, um, Something that you also mentioned is we, we do see a lot of progressive thinking around non-heterosexual bodies as well as non-gendered bodies. And I believe we need to embrace it because it's the time to do so. If any type of social change can take place to make it a more inclusive society, we need to really embrace that idea. And I think it's important to base it on the idea of social constructionism because all these heteronormative views that we are basically talking about, because that's what we're talking about here, is based on olden days, traditional social discourses. And it is used by governments, by religion, by many organizations to still legitimize that status quo and that way of thinking. Now, I know that we said we will also have a discussion about this, but let me jump ahead and just say that in my own research, I found that a lot of my participants struggle with their gendered identities. And if you listen to these stories, which is why we are here as social researchers, is to tell stories of different people. When you listen to these stories, all of them would say that they never felt like they fit the box that society was trying to place them in. So how can we then bridge that gap, right, between sex and gender? We, we need to then interrogate where gender is coming from, who is creating it. That, I think, is the bottom line. Right, right. Um, yeah. No, go on. I'm, I, I'm agreeing. I'm, I'm, I'm noting hmm. that, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So, um, you know, when we speak about trans individuals, for instance, um, 
not everybody ends up taking hormones or um, getting surgery. It is more about living the identity that they feel that they are associated with, right? So um, at the end of the day, with transgendered individuals, the, the, the participants that I have had, it really is a life history. It's not just something that came out of the blue. It is something that, as I mentioned earlier, that they felt from, from a young age. Mm -hmm. And um, with, with gender dysphoria, for instance, I don't take that lightly. I do think that um, people need to explore it. It's also a very difficult transition for any individual who feel different from the gendered identity that was assigned to them from the day that they were born. And then just another point to break away from those essentialists who, who think in a very specific way. Um, I was in a presentation with this amazing professor on queer theory and somebody challenged him and said, I can't keep up with all the LGBTIQ plus type of acronyms that are existing <laughs> and that are, yeah. you know, that are coming out every day. And he said that he took offense to that mm -hmm. because um, just because something sounds difficult or it sounds with outside of your framework, it doesn't mean that you need to still embrace it and that you still need to take it into consideration because what you are doing when you ignore it is you are just saying that these individuals and their identities do not count, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's too difficult to learn the ac acronym. That is absolutely ridiculous. And that will also keep us in that status quo if we don't embrace and, and challenge our own ignorant ideas because um, that is also very important. And that comes in with pronouns, for instance. A lot of people say, oh, that's ridiculous. But pronouns are very important to a person's identity. And, um, you know, we can speak about that a little bit later as well. Right, if you yeah. Want. I mean, wow, look, <laughs> I hope I'm going to survive. It's a lot, I know. I hope I'm going to survive after this. <laughs> I know you will survive. You are the expert. There's too many things I want to touch on there, uh, including the idea of, 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 of the pronouns. But first, when you talk about, you know, certain, pro basically pronouns are part of one's identity. It actually makes me think of, for instance, race. For me as a black person, how sometimes if I hear a white person saying, oh, you've got a difficult surname, I cannot pronounce your surname, and how that sometimes is kind of like hateful. So you actually, in your response, when you say to sort of dismiss it and say, you know, these things of pronouns are very hectic or it's difficult to catch up on. It's actually overlooking somebody else's identity. So I get you there, but there's some way I want to go with this. It's the same as if I think of your work, I think also of my work as I study social movements. And I think about how within social movements, there's different kinds of groups at the end of the day. You'll find people who have genuine reasons to be in the movement who've got genuine struggles let's say you look for example fees must fall people who really struggles to pay university fees and then in the middle of that you find that as the movement begins then later on people begin to overtake the agenda of the movement begin to you know search for sensationalism or begin to search they basically exploit the movement for whatever political gains that they might need or whatever the case and all that makes me think, even in the context of your work, the fact that there's genuine people, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think there might be genuine people. And my question is, are you ever able to sense or to trace people who might not be genuine, but they are using whatever it could be pronouns or whatnot for whatever political gains? I'm thinking about likes of, uh, there's a, there's a, trans in the u.s the name is flame monroe and flame monroe appeared on the breakfast show and 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 um she mentions that she's part of the lgbt only a few hours a day and then from there she goes back to be home and being a dad you know to the kids which actually that even angered part of the you know lgbt community particularly the trans community who said you are actually using our group to actually you exploiting it for your own self gratification or whatever the case. So here's to you, doc. Number one, I'll, 
in your work are we able to see people who are just exploiting because it has gotten to that point where people are using and and i was keen perhaps will stretch that further to speak about the weaponization of gender sex and sexuality if it ever gets weaponized even by politicians during elections or whatever the case you know advocating for people but it's actually for electioneering it's not necessarily that they believe in those things so because it's a in thing people will find ways to exploit it no matter what but are we able to trace those and when we do what is it that we do when we trace that people are just exploiting because to keep quiet when people exploit those identities which are real experiences for other people it's actually to be complicit of people who are dangerous and it is also to open up a space where your work can be criticized to say here you are you can see people are being ridiculous but you are not calling them out mm-hmm. sure that's a complicated one i have to say thanks for that tony <coughs> let me say that in my own work um the people who i've interviewed do not want to exploit their their position um if i can just speak for a moment about my own work um in fact they just want to be they yep. just want to be and to them sexuality for instance or gender for instance is just one part of the identity they have multiple identities they are also not really interested in being political or advocates um and and i guess sometimes people can the community you know the non heterosexual community might see that as shying away yeah but at the end of the day we are all different and we all have different aspirations in life um myself included i um will attend marches i I'm not going out there to be a savior at all but rather to be an ally and be supportive mm-hmm. of fighting towards an inclusive society and more importantly in South Africa to also fight against hate crimes okay because to me it's more about human rights than it is about queer rights it's about us all as as humanity living together in peace and harmony and and I do have a more privileged position in the sense of being a heterosexual woman um and identifying as one but at the end of the day i'm aware of my positionality and i'm aware that um where i'm coming from and what my i don't want to be a savior like i said mm-hmm. but i do want to be supportive of change happening now i do believe that people in society can exploit that in many ways because you know they they see an opportunity but again i don't think that it is something that happens in my own participants lives because for the first time they are just getting the opportunity to tell their own stories a lot of times my participants come from minority groups um especially in terms of race and, and class so to them it's just sharing the story rather than trying to use it in any way but yes i do know that politicians um government religious affiliations they can use it in many ways and and in you know these heteronormative propagandas that exist out there is trying to legitimize a specific way of how things have been done as we were saying earlier the status quo and the majority of people who are in a privileged position will jump on board the yeah. reason they will jump on board is because they don't want their privilege to go away yeah. if you are in a privileged position you want to remain in that privileged position um so of course i don't i don't see myself falling into that category but that is unfortunately how many people think and that is why frustrating the norm is also so important because we want to as a project advocate that you need to get outside of your comfort zone and see what your own privilege means and what the implications are for others um if that makes sense i don't know yeah, if i answered it does it definitely does i mean yeah i mean we we're not really dealing with <laughs> i think we're dealing with very complex issues and and the fact that what i like is the fact that you actually reckon that even in the in, in in the same group of you know people who 
basically you're not entirely dismissing that people might exploit these identities mm. you're not you're not dismissing that um, and it's a good thing to sort of position the fact that in your work you've not come across that which i i, I would believe that it's possible it's mostly you know in the first world where kind of you know these kind of tricks and whatnot tend to happen but at the same time they sort of move over towards our subaltern sides you know see how we can exploit people how we can push certain narratives how we can push certain agenda i remember just a couple of days ago i spoke to a friend of mine from uganda he's studying medicine and he was sharing with me about how even in uganda there's actually young kids who are being promised but it's allergic this has to be confirmed i tried to go and research to basically search this okay. thing to see i know that in in the u.s there's, there's one profound guy joe uh, joe rogan i don't know if you're familiar with his work who actually claimed on his podcast that he did have conversations with young kids and there would be promised incentives if they come and claim to be part of you know the lgbt so there's certain you know, agenda that has been pushed. And my friend from Uganda was actually sort of pointing the same thing that even in Uganda, he discovered that the same thing is happening. So people, please do not uh, call Dr. Tish and myself out on this. Just do proper research. And we're not sort of trying to use this to sort of silence people's real lived experiences out there. We respect everybody. Um, yeah. Maybe jump in there. Um, just on the topic of Uganda, for instance, and Ghana, mm. Um you know, I think our conversation needs to be placed within a specific social context. As you were mentioning about first world countries yeah, and yeah. developing countries, you know, South Africa, for instance, has a very specific history. Mm -hmm. We know that in South Africa, we have an amazing constitution. It is progressive. But what happens on the ground is not always yeah. coinciding with the human rights that is um, claimed in the constitution right mm -hmm. but and we also we we also have a country where non-heterosexual people or same-sex people can get married so all of these things sound really progressive when we look at a country like uganda and, and ghana, ghana yeah. um you know we're speaking about extremely homophobic countries we're speaking about countries that are holding on to specific myths mm -hmm. like homosexuality being un-african yeah that is a concept that means that black Africans, um, you know, cannot be homosexual. It is foreign to their culture. And that is very dangerous. And it is used by certain political figures, powerful figures to, to push an agenda again. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as you were mentioning, Uganda, I'm wondering how certain of these groups um, who are fighting for equality are, you know, how are they managing this? How are they maintaining and negotiating this? And uh, I know what I've, I've read in some of the, the newspaper reports. I know that some people are, who are very vocal about gay rights, for instance, in these countries are fearing their own lives yeah. because they can be killed. So I, I think it is very complex, but I just wanted to highlight that we need to place it in the context of where we are talking about the right, global South right. versus the global North, for yeah, instance. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, apologies. It's me. You know, I moved over. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like I'm betraying my space. <laughs> 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 I'm thinking. I'm thinking from the both, you know, contexts at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely, but I think it's yeah. important to yeah. also for the listeners to just be aware that there is that yeah. distinction. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Hmm. If if I can take you back to then the question: If ever we come across people who exploit, let's say right there in the global south, if ever we come across people who exploit these identities for their own gratifications, I mean. We need to be honest about this. Um, there's high unemployment rate in South Africa. There's poverty. People can do anything to claim anything whatsoever. Um, if people ever are found to exploit, what, what would you say the response should be? People like myself, people in more powerful positions should speak up, should make it uh, in your face. You know, I, I, I usually go on radio or TV, but... That is important because these individuals who do exploit needs to be called out. I agree with you completely there. Um, I, I guess I'm calling for many more researchers as well as activists to speak up. If anything is, you know, we're a democratic country. We've done so much. But if it's mm -hmm. taking us back 
into the darkness. You know, we need to speak up about it. If you look at what's going on in the U.S. at the moment about abortion rights, you know, people are not being quiet about it. Mm-hmm. They are really going towards social media, Instagram, Twitter, etc., and saying, let's not go back into the dark ages and take, take women's rights away here, you know. And that is the kind of vocality that is needed in spaces where individuals are going to try and exploit a situation like this. But what then your vocality doesn't do nothing? I mean, South Africa is a country where we've got great free speech and we say a whole lot of things. We criticize the Mm -hmm. president on any other events, but in two, three weeks to come, it's like we forgot what happened yesterday. And then we go to the very same elections. We vote for the very same person who came forward and speaking at, uh, speaking about, you know, the death of how that was horrible in terms of gender-based violence. And then talking about how he's building, you know, whatever task teams and whatsoever to sort of, do a good job but few days that doesn't happen but the same person is likely to even win when you go to elections so what then if vocal doesn't do the work Mm. that unfortunately is the problem in south africa that you know we have all this free speech we have all these opportunities but at the end of the day it doesn't always transpire for instance when it comes to election day And trust teams, whether or not they are seeing it through. Um, (coughs) I'm seeing a a shift happening because I am on a task team, a national task team for gender-based violence, which is very important in South Africa. But what I've seen, I don't know if this is a a new shift, but I'm, I'm seeing something positive happening because they are not just including politicians. They are including educators like myself, uh, they are including advocates, people who work on the ground with people who are experiencing discrimination. And I think that kind of intersectional type of um, working together is really, really important, but we still have a long way to go. My key thing to answer that question is education. Education, education, education. Um, And it's I'm not talking about just awareness. I'm talking about actual education programs and the, the the type of work I'm involved with, for instance, we look at young boys and we try and um, in, in, in primary schools and try and work with them in terms of what it means to be a man, mm-hmm. right? Because education needs to start early. I'm not saying you can't change an older person or older generation's uh, view, but I think, unfortunately, social change is something that happens slowly and gradually. And there are many people, like I said, on the ground and in the white ivory towers like myself, who are trying to engage with the community rather than just publishing papers or, 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 you know, that type of thing to try and come up with programs to start some way. Mm-hmm. I often have students who ask me, how can we change all of these normative ways of thinking? And I said, well, it has to happen some way. And fortunately, having worked with young boys for three months only, three months only, it was a vast different difference from how they believe they should be as men when they grow up to what they believe three months later. You know, that already is so powerful, I believe. And unfortunately, I don't have an answer for the larger population, but I guess we need to to look at the small pockets of opportunities right. that we do have in yeah. society. Yeah. And South Africa allows, or not allow, but I would say that in many ways we have these opportunities available to us and we just need to be creative and innovative about how we need to go about, go about doing it. You know, many people think about let's look at labor only and how to improve employment, etc. But there are other things happening in this country, which is shocking and violent, such as right. gender-based violence, such as hate crimes, corrective rape. You know, these type of things need to start being taken seriously as well. That is right. my opinion. Yeah. Uh, uh, you said something about powerful people need to speak up or speak mm-hmm. out. Um, leaders have to speak out. Um, and I'm trying to think also earlier on, you spoke about 
yourself as being trying to be an ally, you know, of, you know, the LGBT being supportive of people. And, and I'm thinking about how sometimes there's also, I'm not sure how far it is on, 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 you know, back home that side, how far are we to having people who are part of this communities telling you, for instance, um, as a cisgender, you know, senior researcher with whatever number of privileges you flagged, few of them say, I've got a certain level of privileges, you know. Um, how far are we to having people say, you cannot be my voice? You have to wait for me to brand you an ally. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a status that you can bestow on yourself wait for us to tell you that and if you decide to ever defend us don't defend us based on how you're thinking defend us based on how we want to be defended so then don't take ownership of our stories respect mm -hmm. us within this moment how how do you deal with it how can one deal with it i think you 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 hit it really there with in terms of taking ownerships of, of people's stories. So to me, I would never say that I am speaking out um, or I'm the voice, for instance, of black lesbian women in South Africa, just mm -hmm. as an example, mm -hmm. because I don't share the same experiences. Um, I think the key word there, as I mentioned, is being supportive yeah. um, uh, and being an ally, again, for human rights more than anything else. But having said that, I am really excited about certain movements that are taking place in South Africa and Africa um, in terms of everybody now has an opportunity to raise their own voices. And it's my responsibility to listen, to listen, to try and understand and celebrate those differences, but not to ever pretend that I am exactly like those individuals, for instance. Mm -hmm. So in my own work as a social researcher, it's very important to be self-reflexive, to, to always call myself on my own biases, where I'm coming from, my own positionality, so that I never pretend that what I'm saying is what I'm saying, but rather I am telling the story on behalf of certain individuals who might not be in the position to tell their stories. And, and that is a type of acknowledgement that I believe many feminists and social researchers need to, to be upfront about and, um, and to always take into consideration because at the end of the day, you, you don't want to take ownership of those stories because it's not your story to, to, sh to kind of tell, yeah. but you are doing it in a, in a, how can I say, ethically responsible social research type of way where you acknowledge your own biases as well. Yeah. I want to ask you this honest question. Let's put our academic head outside, right? Okay. Do you ever get afraid of speaking out of line when you speak to members of the LGBT? And how do you deal with that? Because earlier on you said something, earlier on you said something where it just kind of made me think about how these days if one does not, you know, speak with the same energy or the same intensity as activists, you then criticize you're not activist enough. You know, mm. you're not black enough. If you don't advocate for black, you're not black enough. All those stories, you know, you're not white enough. You've got a lot of black friends, so you're not white enough. All those things, they become like things that we deal with, part of criticisms that we deal with. How do you deal with them, you know, if ever you have fears of, you know, not wanting to speak out of line or about anyone? I mean, it does happen, Tony. It happens. I think it can happen. Um, when you speak to people of different identity markers than your own, it would happen perhaps more. And I have spoken out of line. And then I would always humble myself to say that maybe I was coming from a place of ignorance myself or, um, you know what, I didn't completely understand that from your point of view. So if you can explain that more. So um, sorry, I did bring the researcher in again, but, no, but, but, 
But at the end of the day, that is what it is. You know, you cannot separate yourself from being a researcher. Um, and, and these things will, of course, happen. But to me, I am not just, I think I'm curious. I've always been a curious person. So if I don't understand something, and I'm, I'm going to say it. And if I offend anybody, then they can call me out on it and I will apologize. And, and that is something that I always say to a lot of my students. If you are unsure about somebody's pronoun, for instance, feel free to ask. You know, this is, a, this is uncomfortable to some people. And I think we need to, to really engage with uncomfortable work. So um, it has happened to me. Um, and, and remember, I, not, I don't only just look at non-heterosexual bodies. I look at heterosexual yeah. bodies. And, and, and I can explain why that is and why I'm doing that. But at the end of the day, even, even if I identify as heterosexual, it doesn't mean that my experiences are the same as the next heterosexual person. And we need to take intersectional identities into consideration. And sometimes you, you are out of line and you need, you need to be aware of that. You need to be called out on it and, and take the criticism because that's how we learn. I'm thinking about you saying we have to respect this. And, and sometimes, you know, if you're a researcher, you might create a burden over somebody who's a lecturer and say, respect the pronouns, thinking that a lecturer has to deal with 800 kids. And if 800 kids have got different pronouns, how do you deal with that? You know, <laughs> so I'm thinking about our first years uh, uh, in, in our sociology department. How many are they? Probably between seven, six seven, to seven hundred, almost eight hundred. Can mm -hmm. you imagine? So, yeah. how do you mm -hmm. deal with issues of pronouns? And again, there's this culture now rising up that if you happen to speak to people, trying by all means not to go to the point of using pronouns, they'll say again, "Why are you doing that?" Mm -hmm. I can answer that since I'm actually <laughs> teaching the first years at the moment, 800 students. Listen, this is a personal thing, which I think lecturers should learn from. Firstly, I don't open any lectures by going, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I keep it gender neutral. I go, hi, everyone. One thing we, we tend to fall in this, in this um, trap of saying, hey, guys, you know, guys, I, I take offense to that. I'm not a guy, you know, that type of thing. We, I'm trying to be, even in my own language, more sensitive, right? So in the first place, I always, in, uh, I always start my classes being gender neutral. But I have a disclaimer at the, at the beginning of class, and I even put it on my, um, well, we use Blackboard to communicate with our students, yeah. so online learning program yeah. uh, i have a disclaimer where i say if at any stage uh i am miss um you know gendering you or i'm using a pronoun that you do not appreciate please point it out to me please let me know and um two students have done so in email communication where they said actually i go by they both of them okay. were going by they yeah. and i was like awesome great now i know do you understand what I mean? Yeah. So it was more because 800 students, you can't ask each and every one. That's why I have a more general disclaimer. And it's it's funny um, that some students actually thought it was funny. Right. Some students laughed in class. And I said, well, it's not a laughing matter. Um, as you can see, you know, on my, my Zoom account, you will see that I, I say that I'm, I go by the pronouns she and her. Yeah, so that, this is yeah. just small things we can do to try and b bring about this awareness, right? So I think that is what I do with my students and at least the two students that, that came out to me and said that we, we prefer they, ma'am. I was, I was very, very happy to acknowledge that and I think they felt included. And to me, that is what is important. And I believe that lecturers should start. I mean, this is one simplistic way in which to do that and reach a whole crowd. So I do think lots of lecturers should start doing that. And it's a great, it, it requires great training, doesn't it? Because you are going to make mistakes every now and then. And some kids, course, some students will course. be mad at you. Some will, will never be that, you know mad at you or whatever 
what it is at the end of the day is you need to be apologetic if something was um, said out of ignorance or, or just a mistake, a slip of the tongue, mm. right? It is when people maliciously on purpose want to use a different pronoun. And this happens to a lot of my trans participants where they are now, for instance, living the life of a trans woman, but individuals, this happens to them a lot, um, know that they were born as a male biologically. They will on purpose call her him or a guy um, because they are fighting against it. Now, that is very hurtful. When it's used in a malicious yeah. way, um, that becomes really problematic. Yeah. And you know that certain organizations and institutions, you know, are calling it out in the workplace as well. If you do it on purpose, you can actually get a formal warning or be fired even because it's a type of hate speech that is happening. Here's a hard one for me, Tish. Sometimes you have conversations, I have conversations with uh, black radical feminists and probably one of the, and you are an intersectional feminist, your work, right? I never mentioned yes. that, which is great. So you'll, you'll help me out of this. One of the, and probably in, in other parts of the work that I've done, you might have actually heard that part of the thing that I sort of raised, especially against black radical feminism it's not to say look you're 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 asking for ridiculous things or whatnot but what i raised was the fact that there is no restorative justice that itself for me i feel like it's dangerous what do what do i mean by that if you remember so for instance in a case where tony has been said that it's been said that tony raped somebody you know, a lady comes and claims Tony raped me. And then later on after investigating. So, so Tony raped me. And then the whole notion of when they say it the first time, believe them, right? Mm. Probably you can touch base also on that. When they say it the first time, believe that. So perhaps the problem is not really to say when they say it the first time, believe them, right? Because at the same time, you don't want to speak to somebody who really is a victim and say you're lying. Right, but at least give a benefit of a doubt to the situation and allow due process, better process to go on. But the problem again is that people end up reacting and believing immediately because they've trusted processes and processes never delivered. You know, so mm -hmm. in the case where it is then found that black radicals tarnished Tony's reputation, Tony lost his job or whatever, which I'm not sure whether that happens yet on the other side back home. I know that this side, people can just tweet something and you can lose your job or whatever the case. So And you're cancelled. And you're cancelled, yeah. So, so in that case, then it's found that later on that actually the lady lied, you know, there's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So you find that then there is no kind of okay ladies let's regroup we've tarnished tony's reputation how do we help rebuild that reputation and what how do we speak to our sister who went and you know used our name out there and used our group out there for defense line hence this person was lying how do we prevent this thing from happening again and again you know so all those things i raised it as a concern i said i'm afraid of that because at the same time there's still women who say it's ridiculous men are not scared and i'm like but I'm afraid because if I have to join the movement and support you and we are having the reputation of, you know, casting aspersions without evidence and with, without even a restorative justice, what if tomorrow I become the victim of that same thing? If somebody here powerful happens to not like me, how do I go past that? So the fact that there's no restorative justice for me, it becomes a little bit of a, you know, scary moment for me. Uh, I don't know if you have, because because I don't know that we we're talking more about sex, gender, and sexuality. But I didn't want to sort of take you towards black radical feminism. But can can we think about the analogy that I just gave you now in the context of sex, gender, and 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 sexuality? If ever that happens and there's no restorative justice, then for someone, what then? Because this becomes one of the things that it becomes difficult these days to even engage in a robust conversation. Where someone can say, I'm not necessarily disrespecting you, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm against the fact that there's no restorative justice. So Tony's saying, I'm afraid there's no restorative justice. Then you hear people saying, then you don't understand these things. I want to understand, but does it mean that then for me to understand, I have to agree? 
I don't think so. No, no. Sure, that's a tough one, Tony. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to Black African feminists um, and, and just speaking about my students who do identify as Black African feminists, they Oh, and I don't want to generalize. See, this is a very tricky one. This is a very tricky <laughs> yeah. one. But let me say that these students who I spoke to in particular, two black female students said to me that we don't want or need men to, to join our movement to, to help restore equality. We will do it ourselves. Uh, and that is, I mean, essentially when we look at the definition of radical, that is radical feminism in many ways, right? Yeah. Um, so, so these were first-year students, I'm just saying. So, they, I mean, there's, there are new generations of radical feminists coming up. Then you have other movements, of course, who welcome and who would probably um, try and address all these issues that you were raising, um, like, for an example, because of, of having men as allies. But again, that is more the, the liberal type of feminism that we're speaking about. I'm not answering your question, but <laughs> <laughs> but because it's a difficult one. Um, and also, we need to be aware of, of everybody's, everybody's positionality, right? Yeah. So, where they are coming from, what their kind of epistemological positions are, what their political positions are. So, I think... I almost can't answer that because it's not really universal. It's really um, so dynamic and, and so relative, so to speak. Yeah, then a sorry, critique comes it. against you by the fact that you couldn't defend it. Then you're not an ally mm. enough. But what I'm trying to say is that yeah. do you see how polarized we're sort of getting somehow. Sure. Mm. I think, I think we're getting there where sometimes you'll be afraid when, when you are, sort of protecting yourself and you cannot open up or you cannot say nothing, then you get a critique and sometimes you open your mouth and you also get a, a critique from a different, like the space is becoming like that. And, and, and Absolutely. can we say then the people who are critics to LGBT are really ridiculous or they are actually seeing the fact that we're getting too polarized in the sense that you move, you've got a problem. You don't move, you still have a problem. But how do we bring the remedy into that? Oh, goodness. Come again. Can you ask that question again? <laughs> so we're we getting polarized in a sense that you, you speak up, um, mm -hmm. you've got a problem. Okay, in general, you speak about, a, some, about something, you've got a problem. You don't speak up, you still have a problem, right? As in mm -hmm. another group will critique you. So you defend them, you, you're, you're a good ally. You don't defend, you're not a good ally. Nonetheless, there's groups that are going to speak up, right? So my right. question is, with that kind of an attitude, the way in which we've gotten to that, um, can we say also the people that you said earlier on, they're stuck in, I think you said essentialism, if I'm not mistaken. Can yes. we say some of their critiques are really, really ridiculous? Or some of their critiques, we actually have to look at them and think about how do we go back home and fix our own problems? Because at the same time, mm. we, we cannot and we should not speak as if we are always correct. I mean, as someone who looks at movements, sometimes I do speak to my colleagues and I say, we cannot speak about movements, social movements, um, as if they are really all angelic and live an aspect of where we have mistakes. The mistakes we have, it might not be mistakes that we go and parade them in the public for our enemies to laugh, but we need to have a space where we say, okay, guys, let us regroup. Here we went wrong. How do we better this thing? Hence my questions, hence my questions about whether you know, there is a restorative justice. Can the sisters, can the black sister say, okay, come back home? Uh, so-and-so, you went and you said this and this about somebody and it was not true and we came to defend you and now we are left looking out there like idiots. How do we then deal with such a thing? Because you're tarnishing the beauty of the movement. You're actually trampling mm -hmm. on people's real lived experiences. The energy that could have been used to protect somebody who's really vulnerable was used on you, but you were actually exploiting the movement. So 
can we yeah. really argue that the essentialists or whatever are really ridiculous or we really need to go and do a self-reflection and a deep self-reflection because i think what is happening now they are really critiquing um 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 the woke now they're speaking about the, the culture of the woke you know? <laughs> culture of the woke so the woke the progressive are problematic and i feel like i feel like sometimes as social researchers teach there's a moment where we look at things and we're like yeah we're still safe but sometimes i could be wrong you'll correct me sometimes i, I feel like there's a moment where we look at things and i'm like oh my word this was a serious swing of a pendulum but whether it's correct or not i'm not yet sure but how do we fix this because we cannot speak as if at the same time as progressive we are angelic we need to be able to come back mm. at some point. Okay, there's a lot in that question and statement, <laughs> but let me try and I'm address sorry. some of the points. <laughs> okay. First off, um, just coming from a social researcher point of view, yeah. the first thing that you need to learn as a social researcher is that you need to be open to criticism. That's the first thing. Because when we speak about critical thinking, we are not just saying, um, uh, well, what we are saying is that you need to be open to different sides of, of the coin, for instance. And in my own work with heteronormativity and why I look at heteronormativity, which I see as a very dangerous and bad thing, is because I believe that you need to go back to those essentialist thinking, where it came from, who created it, who produced it, who is still maintaining it in order to understand what the consequences of it is in society, right? So um, I think any type of responsible researcher, responsible journalist, responsible type of um, storyteller need to go back to, 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 to how it has been conceptualized for many, many decades. Now, I have come across many social researchers that feel that they are now progressive or woke or whatever <laughs> the case may be, and they are completely rejecting it. Now, my problem with that is if you completely reject that type of narrative that has been existing, right, you are not really interrogating how to bring a change about it, if that makes any sense. Um, so, I mean, it just really depends on, again, what type of position you are coming at it from. And I believe that looking at heteronormativity, for instance, looks, which is strange because I do it from an intersectional point of view, intersectionally, intersectionality was usually or is usually associated with minority groups. We know this. But here I'm looking at heterosexuality because I'm looking at heterosexual people, how they construct heterosexuality and then as a consequence, heteronormativity. So I'm looking at a privileged pos yeah. position. I'm switching it yeah. around, but still using an intersectional framework. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of what we are doing as, as feminists are trying to, to come up with ways of looking at gender and sexuality in, in innovative ways, so to speak, but also to, to bring about different voices in order to understand what we can do at the end of the day. There will always be haters. You know, haters yeah. going to hate. Yeah. There will always be haters. Mm. Amazing. Heteronormativity. Your work features heteronormativity. And I went through your paper. I liked it. I went through your presentation. You gave a talk at the University of Johannesburg where you're you know, teaching about yes. um, heteronormativity. What are the dangers of heteronormativity? I think in the beginning, you actually explained what they are. But mm. can you take us through what are the dangers? And, and whether right. there is anything called homonormativity and whether homonormativity also has dangers to the society. Homonormativity is actually a consequence, one of the dangerous consequences of heteronormativity. Yeah, yeah. But just to go back to, to your first question, you know, as I was saying earlier, heteronormativity has two poles to it. On the one side, it says that, um, you know, uh, there's only one way of being sexual and that is heterosexual, straight, man and woman. On the other side, it says that there are only two sexes or two genders even, and that creates gender binaries. So the consequences of heteronormativity is that it leads to, on the one side, homophobia, and on the other side, heterosexism. 
So with homophobia, we see that anybody who does not fit into that charmed circle, Gail Rubin calls it the charmed circle, anybody who does not fit in that circle of being heterosexual, monogamous, having vanilla sex, you know, all these types of heteronormative ideals, if you fall outside of it, you're seen as deviant or bad or you're excluded from normal society. And with heterosexism, which is something we really still need to look at, and that is, again, saying that women have to attend to certain gender roles and men have to attend to certain gender roles. It excludes any type of other gender variations. Mm -hmm. So that is, again, problematic because it leads to exclusion. It leads to othering. And then what happens also with, with heteronormativity is that it leads to homonormativity, yeah. which privileges these heteronormative ideals within non-heterosexual cultures or non-heterosexual communities. So basically, um, it predicts on those kind of like assumptions of what heteronormative norms are, how these... Um, in heteronormative terms, deviant identities then should look like, which then includes male and female, for instance. So it's it can be quite problematic. Dr. Tish, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights. We wish you all the best with your work and the team there on frustrating the norm. Get them frustrated, even if they complain, frustrate everything. <laughs> and I'm glad the fact thank that you, I'm glad that you decided to start from, you know, the university, you know, the institution itself and going, you know, out there first. It's really, it's really beautiful. And thank you for, you know, honoring our invitation at the Visions and Towns podcast. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Great. So Visions and Tones, that was Dr. Tish. Um, I'll put on all the details and the papers that we were talking about on this particular, on the bio of this particular episode. And then you can uh, follow their work, love them, support them. Remember, don't take ownership of people's stories. Always respect people's stories. And thank you for choosing the Visions and Tones. Go out there and be best humans, be the best versions of yourself. And we'll see you next time. We are out.